You're listening to Design Talk, a podcast for conversations connecting design with theory, organizations, business, and impact. Hello, everyone. My name is Aditya Devilapalli. And myself, Mohammed Danish. So, we are pleased to welcome Chris Curran. First, Chris, could you give a sketch of your career, please? Uh, first of all, I'm delighted to be here. My career, I, oh, it's. I won't bore you with it because it's a hodgepodge, but I've, I, you know, I've knocked around most parts of financial services from short-term trading to long-term investment to family office. Um, and I've always kind of worked in the starting new things space, like get a new product off the ground, get a new company off the ground, uh, you know, talk to a new audience. And where I've generally worked is uh, between product design, so building certain types of funds or investment propositions, and then explaining those to people, marketing them and selling them. So it's, uh, but I think if there's one theme, and it's hard to find one, I I think it would be starting new things. That's what really excites me. So Chris, uh, in an already established industry, it is uh, really difficult to come up with new innovations and innovative ideas. So what lessons have you learned along the way? So first of all, I'd say just just um, just an Irish life for a moment. It's a it's obviously a large financial services company based in Ireland. It's small by international standards, but you know it's very large in the Irish market. We're around you know eighty years or so. We have a very diverse range of products that we offer, from life insurance to investment to retirement planning. We have all sorts of different channels that we work through. We're you know we're maybe three or four thousand people. We have one and a half million clients. That's one in every three adults in Ireland. So we're incredibly strong and, and you know, part of, of Irish financial life. And we, we don't take that lightly, I would say. However, we are, you know, fundamentally what we do is price and manage risk. And that is something that you have to do very carefully or you go out of business. So it's like running an explosives factory or something. You have to have very strong process, procedure. Uh, you have to be very conservative in your thinking. And because of that and the complexity of the business, natural barriers can arise to adopting new technologies and to moving at pace. So to combat that, I think, uh, some years ago, Irish Life established what we call the Exo Innovation Hub. And the, what that's tasked with doing is finding new technology, connecting with external people and partners and, and technologies, trying to bring those into the business to experiment and then to kind of deploy those and, you know, and for business benefit at pace. My, my role within that is as the head of research and innovation partnerships. What I am trying to do is establish connection to an external innovation ecosystem, create connection with, within our business that can solve problems and uh, create opportunities for deploying technology. So that is not a trivial undertaking. Um, and I think if I, you know, what I would learn, if just come back to your original question uh, 10 minutes later, I think, first of all, you need, in order for that to work, because you're, you're trying to get the business to do something that it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't want to do, but it's, it's set up to, 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 to kind of not do that naturally. So you need kind of two things. You need very senior sponsorship that is not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. So it's, it's very consistent support for, for, 
for trying new things and a very and making that part of how the business operates. So I think that's the first thing. Uh, I think in in what I do, the the hardest part of it is actually competing for the attention of the business. If you think about it, if you're a manager in a department, you have a target, you have a set of KPIs that you've got to hit this year, or you know you haven't done your job properly. That's what takes up your focus. And trying to get someone to do something on top of that or on the side of that, that may make their life easier in two or three or five years' time, but doesn't actually help them hit target this year, you know, that's a hard thing to do. So that's the biggest challenge, is to get the attention and the enthusiasm and the engagement of the business. Yeah. So uh, senior sponsorship, getting the attention is the tricky bit. I'd say I th you have to be conscious that it's a journey. So you are... So the problems that you solve this year you know, are solved, and you'll have a whole new set of problems next year because you're, get, you know, you're getting better, you're getting more established, and then you know, you'll have different set of challenges. So you've got to, it's not just one and done, it's you're constantly trying to take on the next thing to make your business more innovative. So thanks, Chris, for that. Um, so you spoke about the internal ecosystem which is developed for innovation. Now, how does Ireland as a country you know, help you to, you know, get this innovation moving and have this ecosystem? So Ireland, I suppose, as a place to do business is, is, is great in many ways. So obviously it's a small market is, 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 the kind of, is one strength and weakness. It's a very, uh, so when I go abroad and I meet other insurance companies, you know, by comparison, Irish life is quite small. However, it is, it, it, we, are, we punch a kind of our, at our weight in terms of our openness to ideas, our expertise. So Ireland is actually, you get good people. There's a, we compete on, in, on an international stage. So you tend to, people tend to kind of raise their game to that kind of international level. With this first thing. Uh, first, sorry, let's start. Ireland's a great place to live. Uh, I, I don't know how you all feel about that, but I certainly, I, I very much like it here. It's a great place to bring up kids. It's very safe. It's very supportive. I think there's something very positive about that, and people love, you know, when we're dealing with international businesses, they love coming here and visiting, and, you know, we, we uh, yeah, so I think that there's a, there's a huge positivity of being part of the Irish, you know, network, diaspora, whatever you want to call that. I think Ireland, the, the economy is, is actually quite uniquely placed in that we are part of Europe, we're very strong connections to the US, we, you know, very strong connections to the UK. And it's because um, we have a lot of technology talent in Ireland, because we have so many big techs that have their European headquarters here. You have enormous engineering capability. You have enormous in, you know, entrepreneurial capability. So you do have quite a vibrant startup environment. And certainly Irish Life has been a founder of Instech.ie, which is an insurance technology innovation hub. Um, and we were, you know, seeing some great talent coming coming into that because all the different industries are competing for the same talent at, at some level. So it's great to see that happen. We are also part of international relationships that allow us to tap into, you know, technology around the world. One very important relationship for Irish Life is a company called Plug and Play, which is originally began in Silicon Valley in in California. And there's a great backstory there, which I'll get into if we have time. But they now have global offices, and they're what they, what they call an accelerator. So what they do is they bring, is they bring together startups 
around certain themes and certain industry verticals. So InsureTech is one, FinTech is one, you know, Smart Cities will be another, Energy, um, Sustainability. So they have 20 or 30 different verticals that they work across. So they will find startups and engage with them, understand what their, what their offering is. They will then typically accelerate and will then bring in venture capitalists, which is the kind of funders the money. And they will kind of have traditionally put those two parties together in, 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 in a way that allows, that gives synergy to both of them. What Plug and Play actually do on top of that is they bring a third kind of party to the table, which is corporates. And I think that's what really creates a, a, a very virtuous circle because the corporates get immersed in startup culture, which I'll come back to the, the importance of that in a moment. The startups get actual access to real customers and you know, they can run their technology using real people and real you know, servers and real in reg real regulatory environments, which allows them to prove that it works and to you know, find bugs and fix it and to, uh, where necessary, pivot. And that then proves value for the venture capitalists. So, that, so they, it allows them to, to accelerate their, their analysis of product market fit. So we, we're do, you know, we've been a member with Plug and Play for some years, and uh, certainly we find it very, very beneficial to our business in terms of how we, how we engage with startups. Yeah, thanks for that, Chris. And uh, as you have already mentioned about plug and play and what it does, uh, on that, I want to ask, like, if there is one point that you want to mention uh, about how startups, what startups will gain from collaborating with established companies? Yeah, so I, I think it's, uh, it's very much a two-way street. So, so I, I know I haven't answered any one of your questions properly yet, so just, <laughs> just bear with me. Uh, but I think what corporates get from startups, traditionally, it's held that you know, corporates meet startups and they realize what's coming down the track and they get scared stiff and they start innovating. I, I don't actually don't think that what they call burning platform model really actually works. I think what actually happens is when you immerse corporate people in, in startup culture, they are inspired. They see that it's easier than they thought to solve problems. It's that the importance of moving at pace, that, uh, you know, bright people can kind of build a new future. And... That it's that mindset change that is actually so powerful. And then more practically, what happens beyond, uh, on top of that is they see something that solves a problem that they have in their business. So you know, I, I, I don't want to drag into detail, but for example, the project we're working on at the moment is with a company called Pickup, which is an Israeli company. And what we have found is that people are much more reluctant to answer their phone if they don't recognize the number than they used to be. And that... that undermines the, the phone as an actual instrument of business. And we rely on that to contact customers for all sorts of different reasons. And what Pickup have done is they've developed a piece of software that allows that instead of just an, a, a rand, like a, an unknown number coming up on your phone, you can actually have a much richer experience where it'll actually pop up a, a you know, a, the entire front of your phone will come up with Hi, Anita. It's Chris from Irish Life. I just, I'm just following up on that call that we had last week about such about your, you know, that quote that we gave you. Is this a good time to connect? So it, it, it's a much richer experience, a much more familiar experience, and it massively increases the number of people who actually answer the phone. So that's, you know, one project that we're working on at the moment. And we saw that at Plug and Play, we saw them pitch and said, actually, that could solve a problem that we have. And and that's. 
it's that direct connection. As I said, it's hard to get the attention of the business, but when you, when you see these, this series of 25 five-minute pitches, one of them resonates with, with somebody in our business, and you actually have the beginnings of a, of a whole technology pilot and potentially an, an entire engagement. So again, to come back to answer your original question, I think what startups get out of dealing with corporates is, well, having worked in a startup, it's very easy to sit in a room and design, you know, design a whole new world. It's much harder to go out and actually make that work with a, you know, a crusty old company that has compliance departments and people who are setting their ways and particular ways of doing things and are very concerned about risk. So, so getting out and getting your technology deployed with real customers is enormously beneficial, I think, for, for, for startups. And I've seen it, I've seen it so many times. You can have a startup that has particular you know, idea of what they're going to do, uh, a product kind of roadmap, and after engagement with, with a corporate, they'll, they'll just scrap the whole thing. So actually, that thing doesn't work at all. We're going to go a completely different direction. So that product market fit piece is, like you, you've, if you think about a startup, it's just this massive resource of capability to to ship code effectively. And you have all these bright people, you, you know, they have had some interaction with, with customer, but not, not necessarily en enough. And I think what corporates bring is that customer understanding and you know, ability to practically test your, your software. Also, ultimately they could buy you or you know, there's all sorts of other long kind of downstream benefits as well. So Chris, you mentioned that uh, there are sometimes very big challenges when you want to drive internal projects so have you, have you, as part of your experience, seen any spin-outs from internal projects? So um, we're, we don't really operate a spin-out structure. So, so for example, we, part of what I do is try and connect with international or global peers, so other insurance companies or financial services businesses around the world that we don't necessarily compete with in Ireland but have done interesting things in the innovation space. So ING, for example, would have a, in, in the Netherlands, would be very well regarded for their innovation capability. And they would have a very interesting spin-in, spin-out model. So they, 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 they test a piece of you know, technology or product, they get it to a certain point, and then they, they almost make a decision whether it gets internalized into the business or spun out as a separate business for a time being uh, to, kind of, to allow it to grow. What we have tended to do is we do pilots and then we either, you know, if that works, great, and we scale it, or if it doesn't, we'll kill it, but with generally within, within the business. Uh, what we have done, though, is, so what you'll see is, for example, we did a uh, pilot with a company called Dakadu that, that do, in, in the wellness space, so that became what, we, what is our, now our product called, called MyLife which helps you count your, you know, count your steps, compare that with your, with your friends or a particular uh, group of people. And it's, it's all sorts of for rewards and for competitions between people. So we have tens of thousands of people, for example, in our recent, most recent GAA challenge, who will, you'll have clubs kind of competing against each other for the amount of steps or the distance that they all, that they all travel. And there's prizes to be won. So it's, it's a very kind of compelling engagement kind of piece of, of software that, that allows us to you know, promote wellness while having been present in people's lives. So that, that started out as a pilot and now is, is a kind of a product within Irish life. We had also did a piece of work with a company called WellSimple and that ended up as a, what we call um, Smart Invest, which is a simple, as simple as we can make it, 
within the compliance world that we, that we operate, um, savings and investment product. And we've also, we've partnered with a company called Multiply in the UK to build a digital advice uh, journey. So, yeah, so, so we don't necessarily spin out into a separate business, but we would certainly, pilots become entities within Irish Life as part of our overall proposition. And download all of those things, by the way. <laughs> Thanks for that, Chris. Uh, coming to the plug-and-play uh, startup, where you, have, you were talking about how startup accelerators work in that. So I want to know a little bit more about that and I have a question on that. Like <clears throat> the concept behind innovation is like uh, if they, if I come up with an innovative idea two years ago and then I'm implementing it now, someone might beat, beat me to the market uh, with it. So is that the concept behind the startup accelerator where the funding happens faster and if the idea is good, uh, the corporation will also collaborate with them and it will lead to much faster innovation? Yeah, so that's... Uh there's a few parts of that. So it's actually plug and play is worth just kind of giving two minutes on. So plug and play started as a, an Iranian family in Silicon Valley who had a carpet shop, I think, originally back in the day. And what they this is back in the kind of eighties. And I think Saeed, who who owned who was the uh, importer of of rugs from Iran. Um, I suppose two things. He had a kind of a coffee shop as well, because people would then see their their rugs and 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 hang out. And also, he had a lot of kind of warehouse space. And he was always a kind of sharp guy, an investor, and quite a kind of a deal maker. But I mean, he noticed that lots and lots of these new kind of digital companies were having coffee in his shop. And he got he had he's very chatty guy, he's a lovely guy. He had kind of a relationship. And one one day, two of these guys kind of said, "Look, we're, we can't find a." We can't find an office space, and he goes, "Look, I've got a place at the back. Do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want to operate there?" And he said, "Yeah, sure." And it was uh, Sergey Brin and uh, his colleague who who founded Google. So that was his first kind of corporate relationship, if you can put it that way. And the next person, next company in that space was PayPal, and he got his name for having these relationships and having you know just became the lucky building for companies to to be based in, and. He eventually kind of realized that it wasn't just about real estate, that it was about the relationships as well, because he found that, that venture capitalists were coming to him to ask him, have you seen any companies that do, you know, this kind of whatever this function is? So he realized that, that that was a potential business. He also was investing in these companies along the way. So he, really, he kind of he set up this family office to, to, to pick the next unicorns. And almost... A, a, as an aside to this, this whole accelerator grew up as a way of finding those unicorns. And it's grown to this multi, multi, multi billion euro industry that it is, a company that it is today. So, so I think Plug and Play is a really interesting story. And they, they still, we, 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 I bring people to conferences there all sorts, all throughout the year. They still have that startup kind of feel. So it, it's really interesting to bring corporate people to, to that world because as i said it's incredibly inspiring and it's you, when you see that mindset it, it really it, you you look at the problems and opportunities in your own business very differently is it accelerating the innovation when there's a good idea they recognize it and they accelerate it so that it will be coming to the market much sooner yeah so i think what fundamentally what accelerators do is they're 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 kind of matching platforms so they will they'll take those startups they'll understand what corporates and vcs are looking for for starts they have these kind of themes that they will work across okay they will find startups in that space 
they'll make sure that they'll kind of, they'll remove the chances of making a bad decision for the, for the VCs and, and the corporates in that they will they'll look at the people, they look at the structure, they look at the financing, they look at, they make sure that it, that it all stands up. So they remove a lot of risk for all the parties and they will, they will also groom those startups in, in terms of how to pitch themselves better, how to, how to articulate what their product roadmap is, how to find their product market fit so that they will be much more match fit when they're talking to investors. So as I, when we go to these conferences, you'll see 50 different startups. They, they each pitch for four minutes and they, they actually all nail it in terms of their ability to say, this is what we do, this is what we're about, this is why this is a massive opportunity, this is why you should partner with us or invest in us. So they're very good at getting them good at that, which is important. And yeah, so what they're really doing in economic terms is they're, they're kind of removing risk and they're removing the cost of search from, from, from those, those, those transactions happening. Alan Higgins here, do you mind if I interrupt? Um, that idea of removing the cost of search, you know, getting out of the silos that we have in companies is interesting. And how would it work? How does it work in Ireland? Um, and what sort of op- places or spaces are there for us to take part in this sort of cross-industry um, knowledge sharing and opportunity sort of identification? Uh, well, I, I, you know, if you find them, let me know, Alan. Uh, but I would say, uh, sorry, as I mentioned, insuretech.e for us is a, is a huge initiative that we kicked off, that maybe kicked off two years ago now at this point. There was much plan, more planning before that. And what that's trying to do is, as, as we said, the world is competing for talent. All these different industries, all these different companies are, are trying to find basically all the people in this room to get them to, to come to their industry, to their vertical, to their business, because you guys are the future. You're, you're the resource that creates the, you know, the, what, what's next. So I think Insect.ie is very instrumental in trying to create a, a space, a hub, a, a, you know, a, a place that, that insurance can attract great minds and technology and that they will be, you know, they will be valued, they will be nurtured and that, that they can actually, you know, create value for, for the industry and for themselves. Okay, so like uh, look for ways to look outside of your own organisation, meetups, your tech specialisms, your market specialisms, just sort of hang out with people. Yeah, and, and obviously I, I began my role the day before the first lockdown, I think. So, so it was two years of actual, you know, trying to network from my bedroom, which actually I realised is quite a hard thing to do. So the last 18 months or a couple of years actually have been, I've seen the importance of face-to-face interaction, the importance of, of actually kind of meeting people and spending time with them. Uh, so I've been going to a lot of plug-and-play events physically, and the more that you can do that, I think, the more of a network that you build, uh, and then you can kind of leverage from that. The other thing that I, the kind of challenge that I've set myself is to, is to, as I said, connect with international peers. There's, there's so much you can learn from what other people have done uh, and how they solve the similar problems that you have. And it could be, incre- if you're trying to convince your senior leadership of something, having somebody else's senior leadership say, oh yeah, we did X, Y, and Z is, is incredibly powerful. So Chris, I have one question before we move to the audience. So you mentioned that you also involve in financial sectors like uh, insurance and finance. So like, do you have an internal treasury which also does deals in the market where you utilize the fund which you have at disposal? So Irish Life has a number of asset managers within this business. So it has a company called Irish Life Investment Management, which is... 
very strong in indexation and kind of passive asset management. So we were very early into that in the, in the 90s and kind of own that space, certainly in the Irish market. And we have enormous uh, international capability and clients. We've more recently gone into sustainability and this management of sustainable funds, part of that. And we've also gone into alternatives. We have very strong property management capability going back for, for many, many years. So we also work very closely with ISAF, the Irish um, Infrastructure Fund. That it's the it's our kind of our, our sovereign wealth fund that we've put aside, that invests in what they call double bottom line uh, investments. So something that creates a return, but also delivers some kind of key infrastructure for Ireland. So we work very closely with them as well. So yeah, it, but we do. Sorry, we don't have our own discretionary fund. Everything that we all the, all the investments that we create are held on behalf of our policyholders, our, our investors, people who are funding retirement, are you know saving to buy a house, or just saving. Um, so those those pools of assets are amassed, and then we we invest them for people in various different ways. But they they get to decide what the investment mandate is based on what fund they they invest in. Thanks for the great insights, Chris. Uh, now we'll move on to the questions from the audience. Does anyone have any question? Uh, hello, my name is Adnan Akluk. So, just a general question: uh, What would you say the most rewarding part of your role is? Oh, um, what what I absolutely love is it's the kind of old kind of entrepreneur. I, I just love creating business value. Okay, so so when I see that I have, that I've, that, that there are lots of parts to that. So it's, you're out networking, talking to people, thinking, you know, talking about new ideas, new ways, new technologies, new ways of doing things. That's incredibly good fun. I'm talking to people in my business about problems they have and kind of come up with solutions and problem solving. That's really, really interesting as well. You're trying to make those connections between inside and outside. That, you know, that's all great. But the, the real payoff and, you know, it, it, it's a slog to get something into the building, to get it onboarded, to get it through your procurement and compliance and legal people, to get it plugged in into your technology, which is, you know, so you're so conscious of security. You've, you've got to be solve all the data problems that come with that because you don't want to be, you know, you want to be GD, obviously you're GDPR compliant and that brings complexity. So it's, it's a huge slog to get something up and running. But when you see that actually delivering value for your business and for and, you know, improving a customer experience or proposition, it's immensely rewarding. Uh, hi, David's my name. Um, thanks very much for coming to speak to us today. Um, just a, qu a question on kind of people within the business that come to you with problems. I'm interested, how do they engage with you? Because I think people within the business can have all sorts of problems, but the benefits from solving that problem have to be measured. So like a prioritization kind of setup, stuff like that. How does that work uh, in your setup? Uh, wow. Uh, that, yeah, that is the question, David. Um, so first of all, people don't necessarily come to you is, is the first problem. You've got to go to them. Now, sorry, people will often walk in the door, but there's certain types, there's certain types of problems, okay? So... Some problems can be solved by just a change of process or, you know, some digitization of something or other. So some problems are kind of what do we call incremental, that the business can almost solve them themselves, okay? The problems that where I operate is kind of really kind of horizon two, horizon three in innovation terms, which is stuff that new technology can solve, 
Okay, and there's there's an inherent conf- well tension between I'm trying to drag the business into looking at further into the future, but the further it goes into the future, the less the business. Ca- I'm, I'm characterizing the business as a, as, a, as an entity rather than not not the people in it, but it, the less it cares. So it's really it's more concerned with horizon one. So you have this tension. I'm trying to drag it out in its its vision and view out into the future, and it's trying to drag it back into solving problems that it has today. So what I'm trying to do is find people and problems that can, that are, that can produce value reasonably soon, but build towards a, a, a future competence. So the, one good example of that is, is artificial intelligence. So going back five, six years or more, we've done, we started with doing isolated pilots to show value that AI can deliver. So that could be... Uh, we put in a system that kind of triages emails. So when people email into us, we had a team of people who had to look at that email and say, okay, that goes to this department to be answered, or this one goes to that department. So we put in an AI capability that just could read those emails and go, okay, this you know, could learn where to send those. Okay, so that's kind of one of the early things that we did. Then we move forward to, uh, we have a system whereby uh, in our health business, you can claim for kind of micropayments. So I went, I got a physio, can I have 60 quid back or whatever? So you've got to, you put that claim in digitally and you give a picture of your, of your receipt. And we had lots of people looking at those, making sure that everything matched. So we put in a system that could read those receipts, you know, work out, and, and the receipts are messy. That's the big problem because they're often handwritten or they're stamps or they're doctor's writing or they're physio's writing, which is no better. So you've got to identify where the fields are. You've got to read those fields and you've got to compare it to what the person is claiming. And so there's a huge piece of teaching the teaching the AI how to do that. So that's, that's your next step on. Uh, and then more recently, what we've done is put in a kind of what we call an enterprise-wide AI capability. So that's a company called Data Robot, which allows you now to, anybody in the business can actually build, train an AI model to do something. So it can look at propensity to lapse or propensity to buy, or there's also, or, you know, look at our claim system and try and say, okay, we, how can we make that faster or more accurate? So there's, so there's, you're, you're constantly developing in terms of the sophistication of what you're doing. And what we've almost done is bring the business on a journey to get really good at AI. But we didn't say start at day one and say, okay, this is going to take five years of no return. And then at five years, we'll be great. What we're saying is there's all these little projects along the way that are delivering value uh, as, as you go. So that's kind of one thing. And then the second thing that I try and do is I try and bring, expose as many people in my business to the outside world as possible. And that's the plug and play pitching events are really important for that because, as I said, you get the energy of, of startups that changes your mindset in terms of, okay, actually, this stuff could work to solve problems. And then you see an actual opportunity that you actually, I could bring that in and do something. So, yeah, it, 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 you're, it's, the, it's the hardest part of innovation is finding problems and use cases to solve, getting your business enthusiastic to do that, and then, f- and then plugging in those solutions in a way that delivers some value along the way. Thanks. Hi, uh, Connell here. Uh, so thanks, Chris. A great presentation. Thanks to the host as well. He did a great job. Um, so um, you've talked about some of the successes you've had, um, which is always great. You learn lots from, but um, innovation is about failure and, you know, failing often, failing fast. Are there any uh, kind of big failures that stand out to you that maybe you can't speak about, but maybe you, uh, you learn something from. Uh, yeah, that would be an ecumenical matter, Bishop. <laughs> um, 
no, I think so. You're absolutely right, and it's the, it's one of the hardest things is to is to get companies that that are traditionally risk averse to be comfortable with failure. And, uh, but the, the challenge is to not make it a big failure; it's to make it a, a small, a quick failure. So we've tried lots of different things. So, for example, that whole claims system that we we had a couple of cracks at that before. And actually, we we worked out how to do it. We've had uh, we've had things that we did that were propositional in nature. So, I'm trying to think a few of them now. Um, so, yeah, we we would we say, okay, wouldn't this be great for the customer? We we'd kind of try something, and because it was going to a customer, the problem you have is. In a regulated industry, you cannot, you can't test something. You can't have a customer. You can't sell a product to a single customer without going through all of the of the of the product compliance protocols, and that that adds a huge kind of cost before you can actually start engaging. You have to find ways to kind of test things with customers before that, but you can never test if they're actually going to buy it until you actually have a product. So that's that's often often a tricky bit, a tricky bit. So yeah, we've done some propositional stuff that we, we it took us longer to do and cost more to do than we had originally intended. And then when we kind of got to market, it just it didn't resonate, and we should have found that out much sooner. So just one last question before we wrap up. Um, just because our course is outsourcing and offshoring, I just wanted to ask you one question: that do you have like uh, any prospects of outsourcing, or do you already do any outsourcing to any countries as of now? Depends how you how you define outsourcing. So we have lots of different cor- corporate relationships and platforms that we operate on, from CRM systems to you know to, to Microsoft to Google to all, to all these plat- all these architectures that kind of overlap within our business, and we have core systems that we've built ourselves over the years. So actually, that is a it's kind of this moving planet. And you're you're constantly retiring some software and bringing in new 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 parts. We we're incredibly risk averse and we're very conscious of the of the data of our customers. So we've removed we have elements of our business on the cloud and that that will increase over time. But we're we're just very conscious of that. So so we we are we, we while we have contractors we work with all across the world. We have a bias towards having stuff in the building and certainly in Europe. And yet we probably are less prone to working with overseas organizations than other industries might be because of the import, because the data that we hold for our customers is incredibly sensitive and, and private. Thank you, Chris. So we wrap it up there. And it was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you, Chris. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening. The music used is Voltaic Fluctuations by Ben Prunty and used with his permission.